welcome back to season four of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and after a summer break, I'm excited to start recording again and to introduce you to some amazing women with powerful voices and stories. My guest today is a woman who embodies all of this and so much more. As a single mom, Angela Parker went back to school later in life to pursue her calling as a black woman theologian and scholar. Today, her official title is Reverend Dr. Angela Parker. She's a womanist New Testament scholar and an assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at Mercer University's McAfee School of Theology. With an MTS from Duke Divinity School and a PhD in Bible, Culture, and Hermeneutics from Chicago Theological Seminary, Angela is a notably educated and accomplished theologian. However, Angela wasn't just trained to be a biblical scholar. She was trained to be a white male biblical scholar, of which she is neither. As Angela says, her experience of being taught to forsake her embodied identity in order to contort herself into the stifling construct of whiteness is common among American Christians, regardless of their race, ethnicity, gender, or sexual orientation. In our latest book, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Black Lives Matter and Biblical Authority, Angela draws from her perspective as a womanist and New Testament scholar. In our conversation, we talk about her book and its premise that the doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility are tools of white supremacy. So settle in and listen to our conversation as Dr. Angela Parker shares some of her story as a black womanist theologian. Well, Angela, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Andrea. I'm just excited to be a part of the conversation. I'm super thrilled to have you for so many reasons. And I, I told you in our little pre-conversation, give me a little grace because I've taken off the summer and now I'm just starting back in this next season of the podcast. And honestly, I've been pondering who to have, what direction to go. And I was just, I don't even know how you're I know how your book landed on my lap because I saw Lisa Sharon Harper because I love her and I saw her, I think she posted about it and I'm like, oh, I need to, I need to look into that and see what it is. And so ordered your book and read it. And I was like, goodness, I just, this is so good. People need to hear Angela's message, read her book. And one thing led to another, as far as you being here and for our book club and all of that. So I'm thrilled to have a conversation with you. Thank you. And I should say Dr. Angela Parker, because (laughs) I want folks to know you are highly educated woman. You are a a black womanist, theologian, scholar, author, professor, all of these things. And we'll kind of dive into that a little bit more with your story, but just to upfront say that, that you, your, your body holds so my mind holds so much wisdom and insight to what we're going to talk about. So before we dive into your story, Angela, just tell me basic day-to-day stuff, who you are, where you live, what you do, all of that. All right. Thank you. So as you've already stated, my name is Dr. Angela Parker and full title, Reverend Dr. Angela okay. Nicole Parker. I am an assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at McAfee School of Theology here in Atlanta, Georgia. We are part of Mercer University. And my day-to-day is involved with training pastors for the pastorate. I am a seminary professor, but also an ordained Baptist minister. And so I take that identity very seriously in what it means to be a person who trains pastors to go out and lead various converse, uh, congregations or faith-based organizations. And as I've been allowed to do this work day by day, I think what is most pressing upon me are the ways that pastors often have a hard time being human. And I have, think I'm noticing difficulties in even some parishioners allowing their pastors to be human. And one of the main parts of my day-to-day work is allowing the opportunity for my seminary students to begin to ask questions of the biblical text that oftentimes they have not been allowed to ask while in church settings and to think critically about the biblical text in such a way that we have liberation for larger groups of people. Now, that's my professional life, but I'm also a cis 
het married woman to a wonderful black man who oftentimes when he describes me to other people who've not met me, one of the questions that often is whispered to him is, Victor, is your wife white? Because part of an understanding of what it means for a woman to be a PhD or a New Testament scholar often does not fit in the package of a black woman. So I recognize that part of my work and part of the shoulders that I stand on are other black women out in the field who teach New Testament and teach Hebrew Bible. And when I think about how many biblical scholars there are, just for example, in the United States of America, there's probably about 7,000 biblical scholars and the majority are still white men and not a lot of African-American men or women teaching Bible across the United States of America. And I think at last count, when we were just talking about black women who teach New Testament, there's about 17 of us, I think, in the United States of America. So that's still a very low number. And so I recognize that there are a lot of people who help propel me to this moment in my life and career. And that I also have a strong black man husband who also helps me in the midst of this, which for some may be hard to hear because they're not used to men supporting women in ministry or in preaching or in teaching. So I recognize that, but I'm also, (laughs) I think, and this is the last piece I'll, as I, as a way of introducing myself, I returned to school later in life. So my prior life was working as a legal secretary and paralegal. And so I've had a prior life out in other areas. And so I think going back to school after being a secretary, receptionist, and then paralegal and raising children also gives me a different view of the questions that I can ask of the biblical text. And I want to dive into that a little bit as we get into your story, because I don't know a lot about your story. Your book is part memoir, part uh, biblical interpretation and text and scholarship, but you don't get into a lot of details of your story. So I'm so Mm -hmm. curious about that part and what led you there (laughs) and the eyes that you have. Um, And so we'll get into that. But before we do, one thing I want to, I just want to quote when you were saying earlier that there's just 17 Black female biblical scholar, New Testament scholars or biblical scholars? New Testament um, scholars. There are, I believe, about 23 or 25 Hebrew Bible, Black women Hebrew Bible scholars. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have a chapter in your book about you being trained as a white male scholar, and Mm -hmm. we'll talk about that too. But one of the quotes I want to read from Lisa Sharon Harper that she writes in your foreword, Angela Parker is among a rising generation of scholars carrying the project of decolonization squarely into the evangelical church. And you are, and um, you, you are rising and you are just embodying the fullness of Christ, what Christ, the message Christ wants you to send into this world. And I think that's just so highly notable that she said that and that you, you truly are unique in this field and realm and your voice. So let's talk about go way back for me to your story, your origin story. I feel like it's really important and fascinating because there's a reason you are where you are today. And I yes. think little little chapters along in your story got you here. So start as far back as you want. I don't know if it's your grandparents, your mom, who ended up in this country where, and mm-hmm. how that, the, your ancestors um, that helped, helped start and then into your childhood. So I'll let you start where you want to with that, Angela. I appreciate that. So my family comes from Alabama. And of course, we came from the shores of Africa prior to Alabama. But a lot of our history comes from being enslaved people on Alabama plantations and then afterwards being sharecropping people in Alabama. And one of the elements of my own story is my grandmother who, when I was in my teens into my twenties, my mother actually had to go down to Alabama and extract her from the land because she was still tied to working the land, but it wasn't good productive land. And also I think that 
for a lot of Black folk, the land has memory, which can be good or for ill. So when you think about the migration from the South to the North for the great African-American migration that occurs in the 40s, 50s, 60s, we have elements in our family of folks who travel up to New Jersey, travel up to Detroit, Michigan, and then still some of our folks who stayed in Alabama. So my family ended up traveling, my mother and father ended up traveling from Alabama to New Jersey, because I don't think that they could have imagined raising children in the deep South. And so they made the trek to New Jersey. So I was born and raised in Jersey and call myself a Jersey girl, which actually as a South Jersey girl, I have to say that, which means that I can easily have a pair of sneakers and some Vaseline and be ready to fight if I need to fight in, in an instant. So being a Jersey girl, South Jersey girl has a certain connotation for my own upbringing and growing up. So thinking about what it meant for my family to leave Alabama, leave the deep South and begin to make the trek into Camden, New Jersey, and then Willingboro, New Jersey, and grow up in that, in that urban and then suburban area is, is a part of my own story. And the fact of being raised in Black Baptist Church. We were in church Wednesday nights, Sundays. I ushered, sang in the choir, just grew up from a baby in Black Baptist Church in New Jersey. And part of the own, part of my own stories from my childhood were I would not wet a diaper when the preaching began. It was only after preaching ended that I would wet a diaper. And so I remember growing up and hearing those particular things about me. So it was no surprise that eight or nine years old, I accept Christ and I'm baptized. And my mother, I remember she'll talk about just crying because I was too young. I was too young to understand exactly what was happening. But I specifically do remember and constantly have felt the feelings of the Holy Spirit all throughout my life. So Mm -hmm. it was not, it was not a surprise to me to then continue to grow up, but then I would say fall into a traditional view of what women are supposed to be, meaning marrying young, have children young, try to be a model Christian wife and mother that when I think about today, I'm not that same person as Mm -hmm. a 18, 19, 20 year old trying to be the model Christian wife and mother, meaning I let things happen to me that I should not have let happen to me. And part of my own journey means I had to wrestle with, all right, I feel as though God is calling me to minister in my twenties, but for my tradition, for what I would see in the pulpit and what I would see in church, that was not necessarily the avenue that I was supposed to take. And also at this time, I ended up being a divorced mother. And so I'm a divorced woman with children. I'm already licensed, but after my divorce, I become ordained. And part of the other story during my ordination in Baptist ministry was this would have been so much easier if you were a man. And that refrain also stayed with me in the midst Mm -hmm. of being ordained in my twenties. So you were said, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm just curious how you made that leap from a lot of things going through my mind, but how you made the leap from like, you were a legal secretary to, I think I'm going to be a minister. Did you (laughs) always feel called to the ministry or was that something once you started living life that you felt like this is a calling? I felt as though this was a calling because other folks were able to see God's work in my life, especially through teaching teaching in Sunday school and Bible study where first, you know, think about how women grow up in teaching. We teach children or we teach other women and then something happens and we're teaching adult Sunday school and adult Bible study. Women's Bible studies. Actually, (laughs) I, I made the leap from women's Bible studies to actual full adult. 
And it was interesting because there, there wasn't a, it, it was just natural. And because God had gifted me with teaching and with the capacity to stand in front of a mixed group of people and proclaim a word during Sunday school or expound upon teaching and preaching during Sunday school. And especially in the licensure, when I was licensed to preach, it, it wasn't really, it was, you could not deny the calling. Okay. And so one of the conversations I had with God, even before being licensed was, why did you give this to me? If I'm not supposed to have this gift, you should not have given it to me and you should Mm -hmm. take it away from me because apparently where I am, I'm not supposed to be doing this. And this is in rural North Carolina. And I remember Holy Spirit specifically saying to me, I would rather you preach and teach as opposed to your gifts going into the grave. And I said, okay, well, that's the answer. And that's what I do. And so after that conversation with God, even when I've had conversations with other folks who would say that women aren't, aren't supposed to preach or teach, I really don't have time for those conversations because I know audibly that I've heard what exactly Mm. I'm supposed to do. And it was interesting. You have to realize before this time, I'm not even having a bachelor's degree. I don't have a bachelor's degree, don't have a master's degree, have nothing. And it was only after being ordained and then going back, starting with an associate's degree, because I had to go back to the drawing board. I had to go to community college. I go to community college when my children, my daughter was about 13. So I go to community college and then I transfer to a four-year college. I graduate from my four-year college. Then my, um, I start my master's at Duke Divinity School. My daughter graduates high school and I end up at this juncture being empty nest because my daughter's going on in her life. My son's going on in his life. And I end up remarrying again at this juncture as well, thinking that I would not remarry and then go on to do the master's and the PhD. So that's all of that. And the other pieces you have to imagine, I'm still having the continuous conversations with God of, okay, now I feel called to higher education. I feel called to just learning and studying new Testament and teaching and preaching Bible, because you've already gifted me in this. I need to hone these skills. And I remember just thinking also during that time period, you're not going to get into a PhD program. You're a second career student. So you're not a 21, 25 year old going into a PhD program, which a lot of PhD programs are looking for the young next big thing. And my conversations with God were, well, if this is the end of the road, you, you stop it. I'll just mm-hmm. keep putting the work out there and whatever happens, happens, whatever doors open, God, you open. And God just continued to open those doors that I would never have expected. So wow. it's, it's all God in the midst of God pushing me along and saying, okay, here's this apply here, do this, do that. And then when I think about folks who I've been in seminary with and been in PhD programs with gifted people who there's not even a reason for me to necessarily have the job that I have or got the first job that I got. And now this position that I'm in, that's God. And that's the only way I can, I can even begin to understand how my life has unfolded. So one of the conversations I often have with students is you're going through and you're beginning this journey. Think of me as the person on the other side who I should not be here at all, but mm-hmm. I'm here. And especially as a black woman mm-hmm. in America, the trauma that's through your body, you're in like, it is, that's an incredible story of your um, dedication and God opening the doors. And it's, I think because of my own journey, my own faith crumbling, deconstruction unraveling mm-hmm. comes a lot from going to a very conservative Bible belt church Yes, and starting questioning the whole women in ministry. Mm-hmm. And so I, when I think of Baptist, I think about, uh, and going to a church that women could not preach, teach, or lead. Um, 
I think of Baptist, I think of conservative and evangelical. So is that not the case with Baptist? Because you obviously are a Baptist <laughs> minister, reverend. Like, so tell yes. me a little bit with the Baptist thread of it. Well, I think there's the difference between ba- Black Baptist and like white White evangelicals. Yes, white evangelicals. (laughs) (laughs) There's a big difference. And Mm -hmm. I think out of necessity as well, um, there's a great book by, oh, the book is called If It Wasn't for the Women. And I'm blanking on the scholar's name, Cheryl Sanders, I believe, or Cheryl someone. Cheryl Townsend Jilks, G-I-L-K-E-S. Okay. He talks about how if it weren't for Black women in Black Baptist churches, there wouldn't be ministry. And so even though oftentimes the figurehead leader is a Black man, there would not be the ability to do the types of ministry that occurs in Black Baptist church without the Black women. And so you don't cut off your foot in order to spite your face. You find a way to work around what people understand as women can't do this, that, or the other, or keeping women in a certain place. And plus black women, we're just going to do what we need to do out of necessity. And so I think when you, when you see different denominations, such as progressive Baptist church or national Baptist convention of black Baptist associations. Yes. I think oftentimes, especially black men in leadership, try to mirror what white men the white men that they see in other denominations, but they can only do it so far because I think there's something inherent in black women that say, oh no, you can't do all of that. We may go along a little bit, but not with the full way that you're going or what you're seeing modeled in other Southern Baptist like denominations. Okay. Gotcha. Yes. I think the world would be a better place if we'd all just sit down and listen to black women a little bit more. Um, with that, I know you describe yourself as a womanist, which mm-hmm. I know fully what that means having Dr. Janika Walker Barnes and others on, but can you just in a nutshell for maybe people that are listening that don't know what that means, say what that means, because it's come up even more lately with the whole feminist and yes. womanist discussion. So maybe in a nutshell, to say what that means and maybe the difference too between the womanist and feminist. So as a womanist, I take seriously the experiences of Black women in the United States of America. Knowing that contextually United States of America is where I live, I really do like to specify specifically United States of America, knowing that there are other womanist strands such as Africana womanism or womanists in Africa in different parts of the continent of Africa. But when I think about what I would identify as proto-womanist and proto-feminist, thinking about Seneca Falls and the question of the right to vote for women, oftentimes that question of the right to vote for women did not necessarily include black women all the time. So I would say that black women began to see that there's a difference between how white women actually mobilize and put forth um, transformation of society. And there's also a difference with the way that black men mobilize for transformation of society. And so black women had to begin to to begin to say, okay, we support our black men in their mobilization for transformation. We also recognize that we're women, but not necessarily white women because of a race issue. So you have to realize that race and gender are differing forms of oppression that actually take up residence in black women's bodies differently as opposed to white women regarding race and as opposed to black men regarding gender. So womanism crops up as this thought system, but not necessarily a theoretical system, but a thought system that really takes seriously the conversations that black women have around the kitchen table. Not necessarily the theoretical conversations that come from feminist thought that crops up in the academy, but what does what do these conversations look like around the kitchen table and how do we then mobilize in such a way that takes seriously the embodied identity of Black women in the United States of America? There's an expression that says, I'm not just walking to Canada by myself, mama. This is a Black girl, woman. I'm taking you 
auntie, daddy, uncle, cousin, Mm -hmm. meaning that womanist thought is comprehensive enough to think about what does liberation for black men and children look like? What does liberation for white women look like? And how do we bridge those gaps that white women in feminist thought often only think about white women or black men in black liberation thought only think about black men? How do womanists bridge those together and ensure that the community survives and that the community thrives and that the community has liberation. So that critical engagement with feminist thought and with black liberation theology is inherent in womanism because those conversations need to be had. Yeah. I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm thinking, I just want to sit in some of her classes. You're (laughs) you're a phenomenal teacher. And that, that even, even knowing what it is, your explanation of it helps me even understand that embodiment further. So thank you for that. And that is the lens you write your book from. Your book is called, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Black Lives Matter and Biblical Authority. And we're going to talk about that um, a little bit more because there's some things I want to dive into. And you talk about your introduction, you say the seed of this book was uh, planted at a conference that you were attending. It was called Liberating Evangelicalism, Decentering Whiteness. And you made a simple statement there, but complicated in many layers. The doctrines of inerrancy and infallibility serve as tools of white supremacy. And really, when I read that in your book, I'm like, oh, oh, wow. Yeah. Because that's what, if you look at so much, I mean, my own journey with my faith deconstruction and so many others, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard it like put that way, but that mm-hmm. is so much of it when you were, we were taught, you know, as I don't even know, as Bible belt Christians, conservative Christians that you know the Bible is the authoritative word of God like that. And then yes. one, you start to question that so many things unravel as, you know, mm-hmm. women in leadership, the LGBTQ community, yes. like black lives matter because we're, we're questioning what we've been taught and it all starts unraveling. And, but I really do think it all leads back to the white, the white supremacy that's upholding it. So talk a little bit about that statement. When you, we were, you said that statement, when you really recognize that, um, just that sort of thing. It was interesting because I remember seeing it in a tweet and I said, oh my goodness, that's out there. Oh, I have to write about this. Oh, so <laughs> somebody this, tweeted no, what you said? Someone tweeted what I gotcha. said during gotcha. the, the presentation. And I remember okay. having a slide where I actually said exactly what I just said. And I think for me, unconsciously, I had been there, but I did, I'd gotten to the point of, yes, inerrancy and infallibility are tools of white supremacist thought. But I had not really taken the all the layers of the onion off in order to begin to think about how that came about. It was something that I think I knew through this entire journey. And when I was stating that at the conference, I was reading the Gospel of Mark in the conference and basically doing a little bit of conversation about the ending of the gospel of Mark and thinking about the women at the end of the gospel of Mark. And I remember just thinking that white male scholar, white male scholars have read the gospel of Mark and read the women oftentimes at the end of the gospel of Mark, where it says they leave the, the, the conversation with the, the angel or the angelos, the messenger, and they don't say anything to anyone for they were afraid. So that is the thought of original ending of the gospel of Mark before 16, nine through 16, where you get other added information that does not seem to be part of the vocabulary of the other parts of the gospel of Mark. And white male scholars have tended to say that those women are not true disciples. They're not they're fallible disciples. They were not as good as the male disciples were. And 
over the course of my PhD work and beginning to think about the Gospel of Mark and seeing how different scholars have looked at these women, starting with Elizabeth Malvin, famous feminist scholar in the Gospel of Mark, I began to see that part of our conversations were still behests to how white male scholarship had been looking at these women. And part of my own embodiment as a black woman had to begin to ask, well, what were these women seeing as they were waiting for soldiers to clear for the, the scene to kind of clean out and clear out and then go and anoint the body of their fallen leader. What would women experience that men may necessarily not experience? And the first thing that came to me was the idea of bodily molestation. Women at the time of crucifixion, you have to realize that crucifixion was a highly charged testosterone environment. And when we see highly charged testosterone environments today, we often see that sexual assault can occur, bodily harm can occur. We still talk about domestic abuse against women and domestic violence against women. And so oftentimes when men scholars read these texts, they don't necessarily feel what women who walk to their cars with their keys in their hand feel. So how do you read a text in your own embodiment and begin to read a text and, and begin to make the connections of what you feel as a woman who may, has to, may have to walk to your car in the dark and see these women who are in a highly charged Roman militaristic situation. And the, the text says that they watched the crucifixion from afar. So they're not going to get up all in the mix and say, take my savior down you easily can have molestation occur. So I have to ask different questions that scholars prior to me have asked. And I think that's part of the inerrancy and infallibility conversation. That inerrancy and infallibility say, you can't ask certain questions of the biblical text because the authoritarian above you says, this is how you are supposed to understand it. And so when we actually begin to take seriously what it means to read the biblical text as black woman or white woman or Asian woman or various identity, we discover that we have different questions that rise up within our bodies that we ask of the text. And so how can I not ask questions that are counter to what authoritarian thought has asked about the text prior to even me laying eyes on the text? And I think that's part of it, that the idea of inerrancy and infallibility is not necessarily about asking these hard questions of the text, but asking the hard questions of the people who have put in place these doctrines of inerrancy and infallibility that does not allow women to ask particular questions of the biblical text that we actually feel within ourselves, but never have an opportunity to vocalize. Right, and we're so often taught for raised in the church, not to question those things yes. like that, that, that is a sign of not having faith or being faithful or questioning mm-hmm. God or Christ. And it's quite the opposite, but you can definitely expect an, an unraveling and a deeper sense of your faith. And you tie that into kind of going along with your title of your book of being allowed to breathe, like not being able to ask those questions and think fully and go those deeper layers is in a sense, not being able to breathe as a black woman. Um, yes. so you want to talk about that aspect just a little bit. I mean, I know sure. we'll, that we'll, <laughs> I want to encourage folks to read your book and we'll talk about the book club. Cause you go into that and you weave that theme throughout your book, but maybe expand on that just a little bit too. Well, think about what we've been seeing this past summer with black lives matter protests and the constant refrain of, I can't breathe. And for me, I started with the conversation about experiencing the Holy Spirit at the age of eight or nine Mm -hmm. and thinking about that whoosh of the spirit into your body. It almost feels like an, an expanded breath that we didn't even know we needed. 
And I liken God's creative breath and God's God's spirit coming into each of us as that Holy Spirit breath. But what happens when it's constantly stifled? And I think that the idea of not being able to ask these questions of the biblical text, knowing that God is so much larger than what is contained in our biblical text anyway, we have to be able to ask those questions with full throated breath. And that should actually be okay because we are endowed with God's spirit to ask fully breathed questions. Right. Yeah. So I think that's, that's where I've been trying to get to and to use that metaphor all throughout. It's been easy for people to see, well, not easy. I think George Floyd's murder allowed people to visually see breath being squeezed out of somebody. And those excruciating nine minutes were excruciating nine minutes of stifled breath that we saw, that the world saw. How can we not begin to engage these deep questions of what it means to be fully breathing humanity in the midst of trying to worship a fully breathing God as well and to push other people to imagine what everyone living with full breath looks like, not just particular groups of people, but everyone. That's what we're trying to get to. And I think that's, that's the, that's a messianic message. Mm. Yeah. I think that's. And going back to your womanist view of like, who am I bringing, bringing with me and bringing Mm -hmm. my mom and my sister, we're all, and you have a chapter at the end about that. That's so deep and profound about it. We want to all go home. It's not just for black bodies and brown bodies. It's all of us um, and carrying this message. So going back to the stifled breath, one of your chapters that you talk a lot about is the gaslighting and microaggressions, seeing that in the church and scripture, you feeling that as a black woman, go where you want to with that. As far as if you want to talk about your own life with those things or how you just see that playing out within the church and black bodies and scripture. Well, think about how we especially as women try to make ourselves smaller. We don't, we have a difficult time taking up space. We have a difficult time lifting our voice. We have a difficult time using our agency. And I think we've been often gaslit to think that we're not supposed to do this. We're not supposed to raise voice. We're not supposed to talk too loud. We're not supposed to laugh full throatedly. We're not supposed to just necessarily uh, preach and teach in such a way that actually uses our entire bodies. We are, we have been trained from for millennia to actually keep ourselves very small. And I think that's a form of gaslighting because if you know that you have the capacity and the ability to, to preach large and to teach large and to be large and be the most, there's actually a TikTok meme going about that says, oh, you're upset because you call me extra? Hmm, maybe I'm not extra. Maybe you're just being basic. Mm. I refuse to be basic. Mm-hmm. And so it's a TikTok meme that suppo- supposedly garners laughs, but I think that there's something to it about how women are often gaslit to yeah. be smaller. Yep. Yes. Yes. I have a, I have a tattoo that says too much because <laughs> me, my, me and my 18 year old daughter did, because it's like, that's how we have felt as women. Like mm-hmm. if you're take up even a little extra space or raise your voice even a little more or do you're considered too much in this world. And you know what? Fine. Let's embrace it then. If that's, yes. if that's your designation of too much and we're going to be too much. I'm going to um, be too much. <laughs> that's, that's right. So, um, and again, your book goes into those more in detail, but that's just part, part of your message. Yes. Um, I want to, there's a couple things I want to ask about. So let's go back a little bit to the inerrancy uh, and the infallibility, because I already know some people are probably listening um, because we talked about it actually in our last last book club, last study, because the book talked about that as well. And people mm-hmm. were just like, well, wait, I've always taught that been taught that that's, this is what the Bible is. 
And you ask your students, you share in your book, um, on the first day of class, you ask your students, what's your relationship with the Bible? Right. And you have a big, big range from deep hostility to, oh yeah, it's the authoritative word of God. You do not question it. So mm-hmm. big spectrum. Yes. I'd love to know, like, where do you land on that spectrum? Have you always landed there? Has that been um, a journey mm-hmm. getting there? So share a little bit of, th- of that. I think that right now I've landed on the Bible is an authority for me. That does not mean I can't question the authority. And the idea of questioning authority is actually inherent in even just the definition of authority. Mm-hmm. And I think that as Christianity, especially in the United States, has developed, it's developed in such a way that it does not necessarily understand that questioning authority is bound up in the idea of authority, that the conversational back and forth often occurs with authority. I think what has happened is the development of authoritarianism, where someone who has power over dictates how you engage with the biblical text. And even when we think about authority, for example, in a translation, King James Version, NRSV, CEB, whatever versions you're you're looking at, when we think about the developmental or the development of a theory of inerrancy and infallibility and authority of scripture, oftentimes going back to Reformation timeframe, so thinking Martin Luther, we're thinking John Calvin, those reformers did not necessarily think of their translation as authoritative. They were usually thinking about the Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic texts of our biblical text as the authoritative versions. So I think what has happened in the way that the Bible has developed as a cultural icon in the West that the development of the Bible as a cultural icon in the West and what it means for the development of society has made that authoritative inerrancy, infallibility question placed and put upon the translations that people don't even realize have been moderated for them anyway. So for me, I think about authority and authority within the text, but that does not mean that I don't question or have a conversation with the text. Also knowing that the text did not fall down from the sky from God. This is a text that has been developed over millennia. And so what does it look like to really take seriously that different cultural contexts also developed and wrote part of our our biblical text, that it's not Genesis to Revelation, in one span of time, boom, it's all there. But I think taking seriously the conversations with the text that says, you know, Genesis comes up in a particular time, Revelation comes up in a particular time, and everything in between comes up in a particular time. How do I have a conversation with what the cultural context of those particular times are with our contemporary times? That means that I have to take seriously that when 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus talk about women not preaching or teaching, they're actually talking in a particular time because we know that Paul sends the letter of Romans to the Roman church by Phoebe. And she's probably reading this text to the Roman church and that Paul has or names an apostle by the name of Junia, an apostle being someone who walked with or saw Christ. Now, scholars over the years could not imagine that the name Junia was a woman. So they changed it and made it Junius a man. However, when we go back and we look at funeral Um, depictions and actually look at headstones and look at engravings and markings during the time period that Paul was writing, Junius was not even a name. Junia, we see as a female name all over the place. So we know that that Junia is a female apostle. So knowing that our text 
are talking back to one another, even in the first century and having arguments with one another, even in the first century, why are we so afraid of having these arguments with one another now and having these continued arguments with the text as well? So I fall in the idea of the biblical text is authority for me. It is sacred for me because it's still part of my own deep seated Baptist roots. But I, I take it seriously. That means I talk to it seriously mm. because it is authoritative for me. But yeah. with the folks who try to hold it over, over me and tell me I can't do this, that, or the other, unfortunately, I tell them to kick rocks. <laughs> yes. I mean, and it's so interesting listening to you and just seeing you as a Black woman and your, your love for the Bible and the seriousness of it, because you also know the history of the Bible being used as a weapon yes. against your ancestors and mm-hmm. to get to the point of, of loving it, wrestling with it, knowing it's sacred, I think is such an amazing part of your journey. And it does, it gives me hope as a white woman who really is wrestling with scripture of like, no, you can still get to this place of, of loving it once again, yes. when it has been used as a weapon. I, I could keep talking about that, but I'm watching the time here because I have one other Something else that I highlighted in your book that I want you to touch on that I think is very powerful. You say, regardless of whether we identify as Black, African, African-American, white, Asian, Latina, or Indigenous, we all have aspects of white supremacy, authoritarianism that take up residence in our minds and bodies. So talk about that, because I think so often we can think, oh, it's just as white people that have that. But that statement, you're clearly saying we all no matter our color, background, race, have that taking residence. So talk a little bit what you mean about that. I think that, again, growing up in these United States of America, we learn how to navigate whiteness. And when I say we learn how to navigate whiteness, I have to take seriously that I would not be in the position that I am right now had I not learned how to play the game a little bit, Mm. to play the whiteness game a little bit to talk in such a way where I can be acceptable in some circles and then turn tables upside down after I get within those circles. Mm -hmm. But I think the other piece is there are a lot of folks who will deny their own identity in order to be accepted. And I think that's a part of whiteness. Now it's not Again, not talking about whiteness as in particular individual white people, but talking about whiteness as a construct. And when I talk about whiteness as a construct, I'm talking about how assimilation and melding all come together to say that folks can assimilate into being whiteness, Meaning Mm -hmm. we came to many people came to this country as immigrants and they maybe came as German or Italian or French or many different European nations. But once that melting pot came here into the United States of America, the idea of assimilation became really the standard for a lot of people. So I think that assimilation into a construct is a big part of what whiteness is. So if you don't necessarily fit into that construct, you do what you need to do in order to assimilate into that construct. And it's one of those interesting, fascinating um, issues that follow you throughout your whole life. So I was not a dud in high school and I would actually pay attention in class and learn good English. And I remember sometimes even as a teenager growing up, friends would say, oh, you talk white or you act white. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of also that background of what whiteness does as a construct Mm -hmm. for lots of groups of people. And so really thinking about how whiteness as a construct gets into all of us Mm -hmm. and what it means to kind of pull that, that weed out I think that's what I'm trying to get to. Absolutely. Yeah. And you go into it, uh, of course, deeper in your book and the mask that we wear and benefiting from white. I mean, all of these things. Um, And that's why I encourage folks to get your book. 
Um, it's called If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Black Lives Matter and Biblical Authority. And as I mentioned, we're doing this as our next book club that I'm partnering, partnering with Tasha Hunter. Um, and we start, gosh, I think this next week, I don't even know what day it is. I've been out of town and I'm like, I don't even know what day it is. Next week we start. So tell us, Angela, where, where can you be found? Do you have a website? Um, are you on Instagram? Just tell us where folks can connect with you. Wonderful. So you can connect with me on Instagram at ANP22FAB. Also on Twitter at ANP22FAB. Uh, I, you'll find my website through Mercer University's okay. McAfee School of Theology, but also developing my own website as well right now. It's okay. just not up and running just yet. And of course, you can find me on Facebook at Angela Parker. Okay. And now the book can the book, be, oh yeah, go ahead. Yes, the book can be found on www.erdmans.com. So that's okay. Erdmans Publishing and also Amazon.com as well. Okay. And we will put links to all of these things that you mentioned. And I know you're going to have a limited supply of books that uh, book club members can order directly from you. And we will give all that information in the show notes via email and all of that. Angela, thank you so much for today. Like this is just kind of renewed. renewed me back in the podcast you've given you brought you breathed into my soul today and i just appreciated learning from you um, so very much so thank you for your voice and time thank you so much for having me andrea it was an absolute pleasure thanks for joining us today and listening in on our conversation as always more info on this episode can be found in the show notes at herstoryspeaks.com And if you're interested in joining our reading circle that I'm co-leading with Tasha Hunter, we're going to dive deeper into Angela's book. You can email me at herstoryspeakspodcast at gmail.com for more information. The group starts this Thursday, September 30th with an introductory meeting. And then October 7th will be our first discussion. There's still spots left and time to join. And we'd love to have you join in on the discussion.